And we just wish that Jesus would do something. Well, Jesus does not give us a message in the sky. What he does give us is the message of the book of Esther. A message that is going to help us to live in a world where we cannot see God and we cannot hear God. A message that is going to help us even whenever all of the odds are stacked against us. And we're going to see this message and how it helps us over the next number of weeks. But tonight, what we want to do is to meet one of the main characters. And he's a baddie. Xerxes. An absolutely fascinating man. And we want to see how Xerxes teaches us about how to live in a world like this. The first thing I want us to notice about Xerxes is that Xerxes shows off. Xerxes shows off. Winston Churchill is really quite renowned for his very, very scathing put-downs of some of his opponents. And I think my favourite Churchill put-down is something he said about Clement Attlee. He said, Mr. Attlee is a modest man who has a great deal to be modest about. Well, the first character that we meet in the book of Esther, I suppose he's really the polar opposite of Clement Attlee. Xerxes is an intensely proud man. Although in fairness, he has a great deal to be proud about. This is the most powerful man in the whole world. And he wants the whole world to know just how powerful he is. Now you'll maybe remember last time I read a message came straight from the horse's mouth. I've printed it on the handout this evening. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings. King of countries containing many kinds of men. King in this great earth, far and wide. And in many ways, Xerxes was a great example that we could follow as a church. Because Xerxes was an incredibly passionate evangelist. The only problem, of course, is the only message that Xerxes was interested in spreading was the message of his own greatness. And you have to say he does a very, very fine job of hammering that message home in Esther chapter 1. What do we see about Xerxes? Well, we see first of all in verse 1, the sheer scale of his kingdom. We're told that he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. Now, you might remember last time round, I listed a whole stream of different countries that were part of this kingdom. And that long stream of countries wasn't even a full list. This is a man whose empire stretches for thousands upon thousands of miles in every single direction. He is incredibly powerful. And of course, you don't control a big empire like that without having a huge army to back you up. And that's what we see next. Verse 3, we see that in the third year of his reign... He gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the province were present. Try and imagine this great banquet. There is Xerxes 
seated at the top table. And who is it that we see beside him? Well, it's the generals sitting there and maybe they've got their lovely shiny medals pinned to their chests. They are scary, well-built, intimidating, powerful men. And every single one of them is at Xerxes' beck and call. So much for the guest list at this banquet. What's the banquet actually like? Well, it's spectacular, isn't it? Verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his majesty. Six months. I mean, don't even ask me about the practicalities of that because I simply don't have an answer. But what we have here is six months of Xerxes showing off. And then we have the climax of it all in verse 5. We have got, I suppose, the first palace garden party and the guest list. And of course, the cost of this garden party is absolutely colossal. What's on the menu? Well, I think a a better question might be what's not on the menu. Uh, Listen to how one historian described Persian feasts. He says, They stocked their larders with a thousand delicacies and often served entire animals to their guests. They stuffed themselves with rich, rare meats and spent their genius on new sauces and desserts. And that's just the food. That's nothing compared to the surroundings. Just imagine sitting there in this garden and seeing what is described in verse 6. White linen, blue linen, purple material, silver rings, marble pillars, couches of gold. We even have this mosaic pavement made of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. This garden is so luxurious and so opulent that I I like to imagine Xerxes maybe going to a state banquet today at Buckingham Palace and going home and wondering if the Queen has fallen on hard times because he lives in unbelievable luxury. And of course, at the centre of all of this decadence is the booze. There is wine in abundance. And notice, not just wine, but wine that is served in goblets of gold. And notice, it's not just goblets of gold. It is individually crafted, completely unique goblets of gold for every guest. There is no end to this man's wealth. And so it's easy to imagine, isn't it? How somebody like Esther... Somebody living in Susa would be completely blown away. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been to follow God and to strive after righteousness? Those of you who are parents, can you imagine trying to bring up your children in Susa? Trying to tell them that the single most important thing in the whole world is faithfulness to God. Can you imagine trying to tell your children that those who are truly blessed are those who follow God? Can you imagine 
sitting them down in your front room, warning them about the dangers of worldliness and being interrupted by the rumble of wagons full of food and wine that are rolling their way to Xerxes' paradise palace. Can you imagine how this carrot, this juicy carrot, was always constantly dangled in front of the Jewish people? Lighten up a bit and you can have a slice of the action. How could you ever stay pure with temptation like that? And not only does Xerxes dangle the carrot, he also brandishes the stick. Those generals, they may be larger lights right now in the midst of the feast, but what do you think these generals are going to do if someone dares to defy the king? If someone kicks up too much of a fuss? It is an absolutely awful situation for the Jews living in Susa. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Do you chase the bright lights? Do you throw your principles to one side so you can live some of the good life? Do you maybe keep your head down? Try not to be too inflexible in case you get in trouble. Some really difficult choices that God's people had to make. Xerxes is showing off. And I dare say it must have dazzled an awful lot of the Jews into submission. It reminds me actually of an episode of The West Wing. That's all about different political staff working in the White House. One of the characters is trying to deal with quite an awkward civil servant. He is trying to persuade this civil servant to make a particular decision. And he's rather reluctant. And so this member of staff invites the civil servant to the White House. And there just so happens to be an armed soldier guarding the corridor with his rifle and his full ceremonial uniform. And they just so happen, when they're in the corridor, to bump into the Attorney General, the Director of the CIA, and the President of the United States himself. Of course, neither of those things just so happened to be the case. It's all part of the plan to dazzle this man, to show him the pump and the ceremony and the important people, and to see his resistance melt away. And here in Esther chapter 1, we have got Satan, he is using Xerxes, and he is doing exactly that. He is dazzling God's people into submission. And he can do it to us, can't he? He dangles the juicy carrot in front of our eyeline. He says to us, Just think how popular you could be with your schoolmates if you just lightened up. Let your hair down. Look at how happy you could make your boss if you just cut a few corners, told a few white lies. He flaunts all of the sensuous delights of our culture into our faces. He waves them in front of us every time we watch TV and every time we go online. And he says to us, look at how much pleasure you could have. And everybody else has got a slice of the action. And at the same time, he brandishes the stick. 
He overwhelms us with the potential consequences of standing out too much. We see the scorn that is poured on conservative Christians. We see the antagonism that is poured out against anybody who dares to claim that biblical values are true. We hear the jokes, we hear the sound bites, we see the memes and it's tempting to think I'm just going to keep my head down and I'm going to try not to stick out too much. That is the challenge that is facing Esther and Mordecai. It's the challenge that is facing us as well. Xerxes shows off. Don't despair though because the second point we see Xerxes shows his cracks. Xerxes shows his cracks. The splendor of this palace garden is in stark contrast to the sleaziness of the revelers who are gathered. Here we have this boozed up king and he's about to let himself down badly. Uh, Maybe you can imagine what it must have been like. Here are all of these men what can you say? They're, they're well lubricated. They are bragging about their military victories, perhaps. They're maybe bragging about the sizes of their mansions. And then, perhaps, they get on to bragging about the women who are in their beds. And there's Xerxes. And he's full of wine. And he is not going to be outdone. And perhaps he says to those who are gathered around, well, you think you sleep with a lot of beautiful women, but wait until you see what I have got. Wait until you see what's waiting for me whenever I go to bed. And so he beckons seven trusted servants. And he does that in verse 10. And he tells them, go and get Vashti and bring her here. Oh, and make sure to tell her to get nicely dressed up. I want the boys to see what I get into bed beside. It's an awful situation, isn't it? Can you imagine it? Walking into that garden. The drunken cheers, the howls, the whistles. As you walk through the marble pillars. Can you imagine walking between these slobbering men stinking of the wine that they've been drinking for seven days. Can you imagine being undressed in 100 different men's minds? Can you imagine them running their eyes up and down your body and then eventually fixing their eyes firmly in place? You would not wish this on your worst enemy. But... What the king wants, the king gets. Do you remember how he described himself? I am Xerxes, the king of kings, king in this great earth, far and wide. And so Xerxes, the king of kings, he summons these seven men. And I suppose they say to him, well, whatever you want, O king, you're the boss. And Xerxes' command goes out. Vashti is to come here and she is to give us all a show. And so these seven messengers, they go to Vashti. They bring the king's command to the king's wife. 
And Vashti says, no. And if this was a movie, there would be a huge cheer in the cinema at this point. Because finally, someone is daring to stand up to this brute. Xerxes does not always get what he wants. And with that short one word answer, the bubbles burst, isn't it? We're never going to look at this man in the same way. Yes, he controls 127 different provinces on three different continents. Doesn't matter. He can't even control his own wife. This man, who just a minute ago was dazzling us with his authority, he's ended up with egg in his face. And suddenly, there's a chink of light. Because maybe, just maybe, things aren't quite as hopeless as they seemed. And the book of Esther is inviting us to look at the world around us, to look at Satan's kingdom, and to see the cracks. To recognise that maybe things aren't quite as hopeless as we think. Xerxes shows his cracks. Third thing we see, Xerxes shows who's boss. Xerxes shows who's boss. Although you do realise, not in the way he was trying to. He has to do something, doesn't he? He has just been humiliated in front of all of the lads. And so the writer describes what's coming next. And I'm convinced, as the writer describes this, that he wants us to have a bit of a laugh at Xerxes' expense. Xerxes has been disrespected by one woman. So what does he do next? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He has a meeting of the covenant. He gathers the seven grandest men in the whole empire together and they dream up their master strategy for dealing with this one inconvenient girl. And what's the great idea that these men come up with after they've got all their heads together? Well, they say, let's make a royal decree. Let us send royal messengers to Iraq, to Syria, to Armenia, to Turkey, to Egypt, to Libya. Let every single person in every single corner of the empire know that Xerxes will not be disrespected. And more than that, let's lay down the law. Every single woman in this empire, you need to listen up. You are to respect your husband. That's an absolute shambles, isn't it? Uh, may as well be a man shaking his fist at the sun for having the temerity to rise. There's nothing that he's able to do about it. But Xerxes, of course, he has to show who's boss. I can remember at school, sometimes you would see a teacher who is shouting and hollering and going red in the face. You wouldn't be too bothered by a teacher like that. The teacher who really strikes fear into a pupil's heart is the one who speaks calmly, the one who is in control. And here is Xerxes, and he is going red in the face, and he is shouting until he is hoarse, I am the boss, I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings. And he's not terribly convincing, is he? 
And all the while, there is someone who is calm, who is silent, and who is in control. There is a king of kings. But it's not Xerxes. Ten years after this chapter, God is going to use the Queen of Persia in order to save his people. But in order for Esther to be the Queen of Persia, there needs to be a vacancy, doesn't there? The King of Kings does not send a thunderbolt from heaven, but silently he sits on the throne and he gets it done. And that is the message of Esther. God is the boss. No matter how many thousands of people march through the streets of Dublin, no matter how many rockets North Korea fires, no matter how many Christians ISIS rounds up, no matter how much you get ridiculed at school, no matter how much you get patronised at work, the King of Kings, by which I mean the real King of Kings, is sitting on his throne. He doesn't shout, he doesn't scream, he doesn't go red in the face. Because he doesn't have to. Because he knows that he's the boss. And if we can just remember that, then we can survive in a hostile world. What are you going to do this week when the pressure is on in school or in work? What are you going to do when you want a slice Of what everybody else has. What are you going to do. When everything inside you. Is screaming at you. To just keep your head down. And try not to stand out. What should you do. Simply remember. There is a real. King of Kings. And simply remember. That he is in control. If you're able, I would ask that you please stand as we pray. Our Father, we praise you because Xerxes has indeed shown us who is boss. We praise you, Father, because you are the one who sits on the throne. We praise you because you don't need to resort to theatrics like this wannabe king did. But we praise you because you silently and calmly ordain everything for your good purpose. Father, we praise you because we have the benefit of hindsight. And even as we read this seedy, dark first chapter, we can see you behind the scenes weaving your wonderful plan of salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us when we're feeling dazzled and overwhelmed by the culture around us. Help us to remember that you are the King of Kings and that you are sitting on the throne. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.